Well, yesterday was 9-11, no surprise to any of you. We will, until the time of the Lord's return, will remember what befell us on that date, I guess about 11 years ago. And because of it, our leaders, the leaders in our nation, have obligated our military forces to be in various places of the world in order to do what they could to see to it that we be safer and I want to show you a picture of some who just returned. So uh, that's the 82nd Airborne of the United States Army right there. And uh, I'm grateful for our, our media team. They put this up real quick because I just got it real quick because that was uh, a photo taken just last night, they arrived from Afghanistan just last evening. That is uh, North Carolina. They're back on United States soil, Fort Bragg. And uh, every one of them served well, uh, did the mission well. Uh, they were under direct enemy fire 26 times. And so that's almost a record even for the 82nd uh, Airborne. And... Uh, I looked at every single one of them when I, I got these photos, and I was looking pretty feverishly for one in particular. Could, could we see the next photo? Uh, that one is mine. That's my son. And uh, he is, uh, thank God we can still do this. He's a pastor to the rest of them. See, he's not carrying a weapon, you see, but he has in his heart the sword of the Spirit. And I know for a fact he represented uh, our country, his country, and his Lord very well over there. So now they are, they are back, and uh, their families, I saw the pictures, were just rejoicing and hugging and doing all the things you do when a loved one comes. And something occurred to me, though, that... There are approximately 3,000 paratroopers who are back now from the 82nd, each so uh, valued and valuable, each so special. As a dad, I knew the name, I know the name of one out of the 3,000 in particular. I know uh, just about everything about him. I don't tire of knowing more. I think about him, I pray for him. And thank you for doing the same. Um, he is not more special than any one of the other Red Berets you just saw there. Everyone is honorably doing what they are called to do. They're uh, our finest, in my opinion. <clears throat> but what is it about this father-son tie that makes it look like um, uh, you, you, you have eyes and focus only for one. I don't know what it is. It's quite an interesting parental dynamic, which leads me to this even before we get to the, the message uh, I prepared. Do you know, if you know the Lord Jesus, you'll never be lost in the crowd? Do you know he knows you by name? He, he knows everything about, I don't know how he does this. Uh, I'm not good at doing two things at once, especially as we get older, it's a little more challenging. But Almighty God has the capacity to be focused on every one of his sons and every one of his daughters. Are you one? Are you one? He's looking at you right now. Lovingly, don't get nervous. He loves you. Don't worry. 
um, uh, he knows you. He knows what's on your heart. He knows what hurts. He knows what you're feeling good about. He knows what your needs are. This is the beauty of accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. He ushers us into a relationship, think about it, with his own father to the extent that he says, hey, from now on when you talk to him, why don't you start out by saying, our father. And just as the father had his eyes on the only begotten son, so too he has his eyes on adopted sons and daughters. Uh, uh, I, I wish you would become one if you haven't yet. I don't want to... Uh, offend anyone's religion. Apparently, our, par our president doesn't want us to do that either, and, and I want to respect the president, so I don't want to offend anybody, but there is no religion that can offer to you what I just told you the Lord Jesus offers, and uh, I respect individuals, but uh, I just uh, don't want people to be led astray. Allah cannot offer you this. Moses cannot offer you this. Muhammad cannot offer you this. Reverend Moon cannot offer, well, you can't offer anyone anything now. He's deceased. <gasps> By the way, his whole theology has changed in an instant, Reverend Moon. <laughs> but the God of the Bible says, come to me. The God of the Bible doesn't say, I will forgive you, but I will adopt you into my family. There's no proponent of any world religion who says, come home with me. Let me take you as a son or a daughter. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. And everything else, don't you see, is a counterfeit of the real thing. They only exist because there is a real thing. So I don't want to offend anyone, but actually, yes, I do. Um, uh... It would be really, 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 really bad if you missed out on the greatest invitation of all time. Come to me. Almighty God says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It would just be an eternal shame if you declined that invitation. And if you don't, then we sing, he touched me. He touched me. Something happened, and now I know. He touched me and made me whole. Our church exists for a lot of reasons. I don't uh, want to simplify things, but the principal reason is for people to be introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow so as to be more and more like him until the time when we see him face to face. What a welcoming these soldiers got. What a welcoming we'll receive. I can't hardly wait. When the Lord Jesus says, you made it, you made it. You think by the skin of your teeth, no way. I had you in the palm of my hand. Are you kidding me? You thought things were a little shaky and questionable. No way. Do you think I'd ever turn my back on you? I know that's how you treated me from time to time. But you do understand now more than ever, I'm not you. I made you. And I made you to be my forever son or my forever daughter. You see these concepts. This is not religion, is it? This is not going through the motions. This is being adopted into a family. Uh, not everyone in the 82nd Airborne came home. Nine did not come home. 
um, death hit them pretty closely. Death hits us pretty closely. It's a subject most of us don't want to talk about. It's not a pleasant subject, death, but I think we have to address the subject because the Bible does. Did you know that? Uh, Hebrews, for instance, Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed for men to die once. I did not write that. I'm just reading this. I believe God gave it to us. It is appointed for men to die once. Now, there are some exceptions. You may be, may be wanting to tell me that, and thank you for restraining yourself till later. But I know about Enoch and Elijah. They were translated. They didn't taste death, did they? They, they were taken by God. I know that. And I also know that there were some people in the Bible who were resurrected from death, and therefore, they're not going to die once. They're going to die twice. I mean, it was pretty cool to be Lazarus, I'm sure, but maybe not that cool. He had to go through, through it again. And I also know that Christians uh, who are alive at the uh, time of the Lord's return, we call this the rapture, I, I, I also know they're not going to die. That's the right. See, they'll be just caught up. It says we will meet the Lord in the air and be with him forevermore. I know that. But those are exceptions. Will you agree with me? I'm not ignoring those, but those are except They don't rule out the rule. And, and the rule is, as uh, the writer of Hebrews states, it is appointed for men to die once. It is a reality we all face and which many fear and find distasteful even to talk about. Do you remember a guy named William Randolph Hearst? Um, billionaire, a publisher, you know, Hearst Mansion, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he made it, if you ever visited him, his mansion, he made the, the subject of uh, death a forbidden uh, subject. You were not to mention death in his presence. And, uh, I'm only honoring him now by talking about him now that he, he is dead. Yeah, see, he didn't want to talk about it, even though uh, ignoring it doesn't make it go away. It surely didn't go away in in his case, it's part of the human condition. You know this and I know this, but how did it come to be part of the human condition? Well, if you consult the Bible, see, that's what we believe is our primary reference point. If you consult the Bible, the answer is pretty clear. For the wages of sin is death. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. You look it up in any translation. That's what it says. For the wages of sin is death. So the reason we are all subject to death is that we are all subject to sin. Welcome to the crowd. Welcome to the crowd. You're a wonderful person, but you're not so unique. You're special, but you're not unique. We are all subject to death because we are all subject to a sinful inclination. And this inclination to sin was certainly apparent in the first of us. His name, what was the first of us? What was his name? Yeah, Adam, the first of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's why death is part of the human condition. It's because sin is part of the human condition. But look, since sin has such a serious and irreversible consequence, don't you think we could have expected that God, if he's good, would have given a pretty stern warning to us about all this? Yeah, he did. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, that was Adam, saying, this is what he said, from any 
tree of the garden. You may eat freely, but from the tree, one tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it. Here we go. You will surely die. God gave a warning. And not only that, do you believe God kept his word? Oh, yeah, he did. Genesis chapter 5, you, most of us read it real quickly because it repeats a bunch of stuff and we don't get much out of it, but, 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 but we ought to. Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he, what? See, God kept his word. Verse 8 of that chapter, all the days of Seth were 912 years and guess what happened to him? He yeah. So all the days, verse 11, of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, all the days of Jer... Well, I can go on. You get the point. God gave a warning. We did not heed. Our, our first man, our, our representative, Adam, did not heed the warning. And, uh, and God being God, he, what he says he does, kept his word. And so death has entered into life and it's become part of the human condition. This is a very harsh reality. In fact, death is such a harsh reality. Uh, many people have tried to come up with alternatives to death itself. And some think they have succeeded in so doing. And so, for instance, there are alternatives like reincarnation, and uh, something called universalism, and another thing called annihilation uh, as alternatives to death, which people have suggested. But the writer of Hebrews, in this letter of better, that's what we've been calling it, tells us in Hebrews 9.27, one verse, that there is something far better than reincarnation, than universalism, and then annihilation. So uh, one verse of scripture, verse 27, rules out any other alternative. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This one verse rules out alternatives such as, here is the first, such as reincarnation. So let's talk about reincarnation a little bit. I'm sure that's why you came. A reincarnation is the belief that after death, a person's soul or spirit begins a new life in a new physical body. And that body might be human or it might be an animal, and all that depends on karma. It depends on the life, you, the, kind of, the quality of life you lived in your previous life determines whether you come back as a, as a human or as an animal. That's the way it works. And... Uh, uh, do you know, what's the population of the world? Roy, I bet you know this because you're six and, a six and a half billion. Of the six and a half billion people in the world, one and a half uh, believe in reincarnation. One and a half billion people believe in the world today believe in reincarnation. It is primarily a core belief of Hinduism. D did you know that? Hinduism. But also, it is believed by most Buddhists. And most Sikhs, Sikh is, a, is a, a religion. And by many, many others uh, as, as well. In fact, did you know this? A growing number of Americans 
uh, are stating and declaring their belief in reincarnation. It is a different America than the one I grew up in. For crying out loud. Reincarnation. Yeah. A number of Americans. Sometimes real famous ones like Shirley MacLaine. You know her. Uh, she wrote the book, Out on a Limb. You want to know something? You cannot get it in our bookstore. Isn't that good? <laughs> Pleased to tell you. It ain't there. But anyway, Shirley MacLaine wrote Out on a Limb, and she, in it, said this. She said, reincarnation is like show business. You just keep on doing it until you get it right. No, see, see, the Bible says it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. No second chance. You know what's most disheartening of all? A growing number of those who call themselves Christians also say they believe in reincarnation. A growing number. In fact, a survey was done in 2009 by the Pew Forum. They found that 24% of American Christians, one-fourth, expressed a strong and sincere belief in reincarnation. And yet, according to one verse of Scripture, Hebrews 9:27, we do not die and then live and then die and then Live and on and on and on. No, this verse says it is appointed for men to die once. So this verse, one verse, rules out reincarnation. But folks, it also rules out another belief called universalism. And simply put, this is the belief that everybody's going to heaven. This is the this is the religion of Hollywood. When Ever a famous uh, Hollywood personage passes, no matter how reprobate, immoral, and depraved, inevitably someone gets up there and says, I know he's looking down at us now with all the angels. And so that's universalism. That's a theology. By the way, you're entitled to any theology. You want, but don't deny that it's a religious point of view. Those are people who are just commenting on what happens to the soul eternally. And universalism says everyone goes to heaven. In fact, universalism says there's no such thing as a literal hell. There is no accountability to any such God God is good. He doesn't judge anybody. There is no eternal punishment at all. Everybody goes to heaven. Yeah. They say God's love and goodness require it. If God is loving, he's not going to send anyone to hell. If he's good and loving, there is no hell. Eternal punishment, you naive Christians, you Bible people, eternal punishment, they say is a false doctrine. And some calling themselves Christians have taken universalism and given it a Christian veneer. You should know these things. It's called Christian universalism. It exists today. Can I tell you something? If you leave this church, it's not the end of the world. Just make sure you go to one that's teaching truth. 
You don't have to stick around here. This is not the one world true church. There's other options. That's fine. Maybe it's the best thing. But you need to be careful. You need to know that not every church is the same as every other church. You're not going to hear about Christian universalism in our iConnect Bible studies here this Sunday. I, I'm pretty sure of that. But I'll tell you what it is tonight. It's the position that all people are going to be saved through Jesus, whether or not a person accepts him this side of heaven. Since Jesus did, in fact, suffer and die for the sins of humankind, whether you accept him now or not is irrelevant. He already took care of your stuff. And on his merits, even though you may have rejected him now, he will accept you then. That's Christian universalism. Can I tell you what I think about that? I love that. That is like the coolest thing. It's just wrong. It's just a lie. It's just, it's, look, Hebrews 9, could you please, am I missing the point here? Hebrews 9, 27 simply says there is death, and then what happens is not a pardon for everyone. Judgment. What does, am I missing the word, am I missing something? Judgment does not look like a real fun thing. It's not party with Jesus time. Death and then judgment. To me, that one verse rules out Christian universalism. Folks, if faith in and repentance towards Jesus Christ is not required now in order to receive the gift of salvation which endures on into eternity then. If that's not required, could you please tell me why the New Testament speaks so much about faith in Jesus and repentance towards him? Could you please tell me? Also, if Christian universalism is true, you just die and you're all, you're all everyone's saved, there is no judgment, could you please tell me why Jesus Christ had to go through such an excruciating, excruciating life and death? You tell me. We spoke about it a little bit somewhat graphically last week. He bled. He was whipped to shreds. He was publicly humiliated. He was rendered naked. They spat upon him. They mocked. Why did he go through all of that? If it is unnecessary. I and mean, here's another deal. The very people who tell you about Christian universalism will tell you they don't like anything that, uh, that um, cramps people's styles. You know, do what you want to do. In other words, they believe in free will, free choice, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but wait, there's a ton of people today. You can go walk around in the streets and stop a few, and you'll get at least some who they'll listen to you, talk to them about the Lord Jesus and about heaven. They'll say, I don't want him. <laughs> I don't want this heaven. It's gonna be, if heaven is going to be populated with people like you, what a boring place that's going to be. I want my poker games. They're going to look you right in the eye after you've done your best to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't believe in him. They're going to say, if he makes you happy, that's cool, but I don't need him. And then you're going to go on some more, and you're going to talk about sin and what we owe him, but how he graciously 
pay the penalty for it so that we could live with him forever in heaven. And you're going to say, heaven is a place where there's total satisfaction of needs. You, 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 you'll be in the presence of all my... And I don't want to go to heaven. But Christian universalists would lead us to believe that heaven is going to be populated by people who don't really want to be there. Does that make sense to you? No, thank you, Billy. It doesn't make sense to me either. God's not going to force himself upon anyone. So Christian universalism is simply not right. Hebrews 9.27, one verse. As you can see, we're just looking at one verse tonight. It kind of rules that out. It says, we all face death, and then we all face judgment. A young child could understand Hebrews 9.27. And Scripture tells us that the outcome of that judgment is not going to be the same for each of us. Some are judged and then gain entrance into heaven. But some at that same place of judgment are judged and spend their eternity in hell. That's what the scriptures say. So this verse not only, Hebrews 9.27, it not only refutes reincarnation and universalism, this final thing, it also refutes something called annihilation. That's the belief that your death brings to an end all there is of you and all that there is for you. Annihilation. Upon your death, nothing lives on. You are annihilated. That's the teaching. So there's this character named Epicurus. He's a very attractive uh, person, as you see in that uh, sculpture. He was an ancient uh, philosopher. He died in 270 B.C. He taught that nobody needs to fear death whatsoever because we are nothing more than a uh, kind of a composition of atoms, and uh, they, they just disperse at death. Atoms, the stuff you're made of, just disperses at death, making it death the end of all things for you and therefore he taught there are no gods to fear nor is there anything to face you're dead you're not facing anything you're annihilated that's it you don't last beyond your last breath your death is the end in other words that's all folks <laughs> that's what epicurus and epicurus he said now look at here if this is the case, and it is the case, he said, man, you ought to spend your time in life maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, because that's all there is to it. We've got a ton of people living by Epicurean philosophy and theology without even knowing they're doing it right now. Get all the gusto. If it feels good, do it. That's Epicureanism. So Epicurus, here's what he said. He said, thus, that which is the most awful of evils, death, is nothing to us since when we exist, there is no death. And when there is death, we do not exist. That's what he said. Yeah. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews in uh, chapter 9, verse 27 said. He makes it clear that physical death does not end our existence. He said, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Folks, did you see it? The two words, after this. There is an after this. You're not annihilated. Death is not the end of you, and that's why death is so important. Because there's something that comes after it that you have to prepare for now. You have to give an account to God. 
It is appointed for men, all men, to die once, and after this comes judgment. So then, beliefs like reincarnation and universalism and annihilationism are perspectives which Hebrews 9.27 says are simply not true. But what then does Hebrew 9.27 suggest is true? It's this. We ought to prepare now for what we're going to face later. And all of us later are going to face the inevitability of death. And then after that, all of us are going to face the inevitability of judgment. And since we do not know when we will die, we should not put off for tomorrow what needs to be a settled matter today. It is not my purpose or anyone's here to to bring you down, but I think I have to tell you there, there is no book that guarantees your safe arrival at your home tonight. We don't know. We don't know. So what the writer of Hebrews said is we ought to prepare now for what we will inevitably face at a time we know not of. Don't put off for tomorrow what could be settled tonight because death seals one's eternity. There are no second chances. Upon death, there's nothing we and there's nothing anyone else can do to improve our standing with God. There are whole religious groups who say, no, that's not exactly true. You can do things, you the living, for your deceased loved ones now to give them better standing with God. Now, I won't mention names because I don't want to right now. Um, but there are religious groups and they practice things like um, um, praying for the dead to get them out of where they are into a better place, giving offerings for the dead and something called baptism for the dead. Baptism. You'll, you'll maybe find out more about this point of view as we examine the theologies of our various candidates. Please do. Uh, but, 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 but no, that, that's not true. See, the Bible says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, and that tells me there's nothing, there's nobody who can intervene for you between these two events of your death and judgment. That's it. One follows right after the other. So the Bible makes it clear that our eternal destiny is determined by what takes place before we die, not after. So what then needs to take place before we die? So as to ensure our acquittal in the judgment to come. I can give you the answer by telling you a story. Uh, there was a one-room schoolhouse in a very rural, fairly impoverished area. They had a hard time getting and then even keeping a school teacher. Finally, they did. A man came with his family. In fact, he had a son enrolled in this one-room schoolhouse Soon there, he found out, boy, these kids are really unruly. There were a lot of factors contributing to it. Uh, they didn't have any permanent teacher, and they were just carrying on. So the teacher, his first week at the school, said, you know what, uh, boys, uh, we need to come up with some rules for proper behavior here, but I want you to form them. Form the rules, but also I want you to connect a penalty to each of the rules should they be violated. Well, the boys really got into this. They thought this was a good exercise, and they came up with a set of rules. He had them come up to the blackboard. Those are the days when we had those things. A blackboard, and they would write these rules. And one of them was, uh, no one is allowed to steal another boy's lunch. And the penalty for it was, the boy has to take off his jacket. He's going to get five lashes from the teacher with a whip. 
if anyone is caught stealing another boy's lunch. You see, why'd they put that up there? Well, they were poor kids. Lunch was really important, and it was a rural area, so they lived pretty far, many of them from their home. They didn't go home uh, from school during lunchtime. They had to have their lunch with them to get them through the school day, so this would have been a pretty bad thing to do, to have your lunch stolen. Well, after a while, uh, uh, the first boy uh, said to the teacher, someone stole my lunch. Oh, my goodness. And then it happened again. And the teacher did an investigation, and he found the culprit. Much to his dismay, it was a boy named Willie. And the reason why the teacher was so disappointed by this is that Willie was this really, really, maybe one of the poorest of kids. And the teacher knew he was hungry. He stole other kids' lunches because his parents were so poor, they often could not send him to school with any food. And not only that, because of this, he was pretty malnourished. A real thin, slight-of-build little kid. Everyone... All the boys wished it was somebody else and not Willie. But look, they formed the rules. A rule had been broken. A penalty had to be imposed. And so the teacher one day called Willie from his back row seat up to the front of the room. And he told him to take off his jacket. And then all the kids just, (gasps) they took a deep breath because he didn't even have an undershirt. The kids thought, well, they'll take the jacket off, but everyone has an undershirt. It'll absorb some of the blows. But, but he was too poor. The kid was too poor. He didn't have an undershirt, just bare skin. You can see bone sticking through. Just a skinny little kid was he. So they gasped. The teacher lifted the whip up, and he was about to come down to impose the penalty. Five lashes. And then suddenly, there's a hand in the back. Teacher, teacher. Well, it was the teacher's son. And the son said, teacher, if someone would be willing to come up front and take Willie's place, and if Willie would agree to it, would Willie go free? And the teacher teacher paused and thought for a while and said, yes, if Willie is willing. And the teacher's son stood up, walked from the back of the room, came up to Willie, looked him right in the eye, and said an extraordinary thing from Willie's point of view. Willie, could I take, will you permit me? Will you allow me to take your place? Willie could hardly get the words out. He just nodded his head, put his jacket back on, took his seat, and the teacher whipped his own son. His son had done nothing wrong. Willie was the one who broke the rule. Willie was the guilty one, but the guilty one went free. Folks, God has rules. We have broken them. He declared the penalty for the wages of sin is death and then judgment. But Jesus, God's son, came forward, came down. With the Father's permission, the two of them in full agreement, to take our place, to be whipped, scourged, pierced through, crucified, to die on a cross. Father and Son agreed about this. And on the cross, Jesus, God's guiltless, innocent Son, suffered and died so that we, the guilty ones, could go free. Willie was left with a decision. Could I take your place? The father's son asked. Two options. Let me think about it. Won't work. No, you cannot take my place. Then you don't go free. Yes, 
Why? It's inexplicable to me. It's an inexpressible gift. Why you're willing to do this? I haven't done anything for you. In fact, I have turned to get, we're not friendly. But the answer is yes, yes, a thousand times yes. If you're willing to take my place so that I could go free. Willie had to say yes to the teacher's son. We're given the opportunity of saying yes to God's son. I ask you a simple question. Have you done so? Have you done so? I'm glad my son is back home and alive. But I already reconciled in my mind that may not be the case. And then I said, but he said yes to you. He said yes, oh God, to your son. And even if the inevitability of death should come his way, sooner than I would like. I know because of his yes to God's son, the guilty one will go free and will stand in the judgment. For the Bible says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed. Out of death, into life. Folks, if you accept Jesus as Savior today, you will have no need to fear him as judge tomorrow. Don't say no to God's son. Say yes to God's son and become one of his sons or daughters yourself. Then you could sing as we do sometimes, blessed assurance. Could I tell you something? I'm not worried about the judgment to come. I'm deserving of a guilty charge. Don't misunderstand. But because God's son paid the penalty for my sin, the guilty one's going to go free. So I love this hymn, Blessed Assurance. Oh, Jesus is mine. Knowing him now, you know what it is? It's just a foretaste of judgment. No, no, of glory divine. How could you say that? Because I'm an heir of salvation. How? Purchase of God. Born of his spirit. Washed in his blood. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his speed. This is my story. Please make it yours tonight. Lord Jesus, give people a salvation story that they cannot keep to themselves. <laughs> give them a salvation story tonight. Move by the power of your spirit in that person's life. So that person says, yes, I would like you to take my place for my sin. So that I, the guilty one, can go free. Not fear the future, but look forward to spending it forever with you. Oh God, you're the Savior. 
save the ones who need to be saved tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.